0: Our text is in James chapter 1 and verse 19 as we continue on in the book of James. If you'd turn there, James chapter 1 and verse 19, you'll find that on page 1208 if you're using one of our pew Bibles. So please do turn there if you haven't brought your own. Our title for our message this morning is A Proper Religious Affections. Proper religious affections. Now we began this discussion a couple weeks ago and we continue on today and we spoke about at that time the importance of that word proper in the title because there are a lot of people that have religious affections. There are religions all over the world. In fact, we had the blessing of having dinner with Bill last night and we were talking about Japan and the many, many religions that exist even in that small country. Taoism, Shintoism, Zenism, and and a number of others. And so there's a lot of religious affections out there, but it's critical that we recognize the proper religious affection. That is the affection which focuses and centers on Christ and not the other religions or cults that are around the world. So as we talk about our subject, we indeed focus on this aspect of proper religious affections. Our text today bears some similarity with the weather, and that commonality lies in the idea of saturation, Last week, for Father's Day, my wife and kids gave me a couple of gardenias to plant out in the back garden, and I was ecstatic about it, because every time I come into the church and those are blooming out on the walk, I have to stop and take a smell. So I was so thankful to have a couple at home for myself, and as Averill and I planted them one warm afternoon this week, the concept of saturation became very clear, and uh, the weather as well, as a function of that, as I came in and was pretty much just... Running with perspiration after that fairly short endeavor. Well, today in our text, we're going to have a similar experience, only in a different realm. Well, Call this part two of our discussion as this is our second endeavor into this great text. So this is proper religious affections part two, if you will. Let me read our text and then we'll make some comments about it. James chapter one, beginning in verse 19, if you would follow along. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does." If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world." As we looked at this text a couple weeks ago and and began into this great scripture, we saw that verse 19 was the springboard for the whole section of the text. James began with this very tender and inclusive greeting, my beloved brethren. And we talked about how he did so when he wanted to associate with himself To the church and make them realize that he was not separate from them. He was not some high and lofty theologian that could not relate to the challenges and problems that the congregation had and the difficulties in which they struggled. So he associated himself with them. And he also did so when he was going to have a particularly difficult text that he was going to bring forward. And he began with this command in verse 19 Know this. Or, per the New American Standard, this you know. That that verb tense indicated a command about information that he expected that they should already understand. The verb for knowing here is head knowledge. There are two words, as we often talk about, both in the Hebrew and the Greek, for this word no one is the the head knowledge or the understanding and the other is the heart knowledge or the experiential knowledge here he is talking about the head knowledge that we are to have as we come to this understanding that he commands them to realize and this is something they've heard before and of which they should already have this knowledge of and the verb indicating that tense And then he gives the effective introduction, which describes these three areas of hearing and of speaking and of anger. Now, the proper application of these three elements is what James expects his audience to know. And thus, he commands them in this fashion. We'll see that the order in which these are discussed is changed from the introduction and as we move into the text. And we'll also notice in verse 19 that he specifically applies this to each person. Again, our New American Standard reads everyone, but a literal translation of that text would be every man. So this is an all-inclusive text James is including himself as he does with my beloved brethren. And it is every person to whom he writes and they're in universal to every believer because as he addresses them as his brethren, he is specifically relating to those that are true believers in Christ. And every person is to be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger. Interestingly, interestingly, There's a unique construction that precedes both of these verbs, hearing and speaking in the Greek text. That structure indicates purpose and it focuses on the beginning of the action. We might translate this as quick so as to hear or slow so as to speak The focus is on the beginning of the action. That is, the beginning of the hearing or the beginning of the speaking. So at the beginning of your response to a situation, he's saying, be quick to hear. At the beginning of your understanding, be slow to respond or to speak. And the point of the the adjective that describes the speed that is either quick or slow is to modify the action of the verb so that it is rightly accomplished. And that is so important for us to understand. When he says, be quick so as to hear, he means that as this comes to you, at the beginning of your hearing, be quick to comprehend and to take it in. In the same fashion, he says, at the beginning of Your speaking, be slow. Allow that to to permeate. Allow yourself to consider what you are saying at the very beginning. Do not allow rash words and thoughts and reactions to come forth. And we discussed last time that the situation that James is referring to in verse 19 is back in verse 18. It is the word of truth. The scriptures. These are the sources of the quick hearing. These are the sources of the slow speaking and of the slow anger. And the reason that we are to be this way is so that the word can penetrate our hearts and have its effect. This is what we talked about actually even last week in our sixth point as we were talking about a fatherly exhortation from Second Timothy 2. You might remember that we went through those eight points and our sixth point was from Second 2 Timothy 2.15 and we labeled it be steadfast. We're very familiar with that Awana theme verse from Second 2 Timothy 2.15, which says, be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. A right response to Scripture is what he's proclaiming we must have. We must be diligent to show ourselves approved to God so that as we handle his word, we are rightly responding and reacting to it. This is also what Psalm 119.11 talks about, where it says, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. There has to be a right reception of God's word so that we do not sin. And it is the word which is our protection against sinning. And it is beautiful for us to understand that the word of truth from James 1.18, as we discussed, is talking about the Old Testament scripture references as this was the first New Testament book written in 45 AD. So, as you go back and refresh yourselves on that message a couple weeks ago from that Old Testament connection, we realize this importance of God's word being the overarching element by which we are quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. In addition to our first point, that effective introduction two weeks ago, we also looked at our second point, which was the effect of anger. And as mentioned, the order of material from verse 19 is changed in James' treatment of these three subjects. And as anger is mentioned last in verse 19, it becomes the first on which James embarks. And I'd again refer you back to that important message from two weeks ago to refresh yourselves on this vital topic of anger. One which we noted resulted in unrighteousness for verse 20. And that which could be eternally separating and a damning condition in a person's life. And as we also discussed, and I just mentioned, our text applies to the believers in the church. Another important aspect of the effect of anger was accepting that anger is sin. And it needs to be stripped off like dirty garments, as verse 21 tells us. Many people think their anger is acceptable. You know, it's just who I am. I just am, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fiery person. I'm a zealous person. Well, if you are an angry person, you are a sinful person because the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So we need to understand that if we are those that are angry, then we must strip that off, as verse 21 tells us, as those dirty garments. And also the aspect of eternity, which results from a right understanding and response to anger. This because one's receiving the implanted word of God, which is able to save your soul. I, again, can't stress enough the importance of this section or encourage you strongly enough to reconsider that topic from a couple weeks ago. Well, it is that last phrase from verse 21 that speaks of receiving the implanted word of God. This is the phrase that launches us into our third point in our text for today, which is the effect of hearing in verses 22 to 25. The effect of hearing. Hearing the word of God is a critical component. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. After all, Scripture tells us that it is the Word of God alone that will not return void. So I think we all understand how important it is that we hear the Word. The necessity of hearing is so clear from our personal relationships, isn't it? I've shared with you as attempting to be transparent when my wife and I are privileged to have those times of intense fellowship And as those occur and we're not getting along as perfectly as we might, perhaps some of you can relate to not hearing if you have had those times of intense fellowship in your relationships. And rather than your spouse listening to what you're saying, you're sure they are just poised and ready to launch. They're ready to come back at you for what you just said. And what are they doing? They're not hearing what's going on. So we understand the critical nature of hearing, both in our interpersonal relationships, and how much more when it comes to the Word of God. Well, Paul affirms this vital nature of biblical hearing in Romans 10. And Paul says there in Romans 10, beginning in verse 9, the following. He says in Romans ten nine that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. For scripture says whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all. Abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? So salvation, as Paul tells us, comes from the word of God. And it occurs by confessing and believing. As we've discussed, that confessing is not a a one-time proclamation. It is not confessing and walking down the aisle. It is not confessing in the waters of baptism. It is not praying a prayer one time and then living your life. That is an ongoing action of confessing Christ in our lives. Confessing him as Lord and Savior and Sovereign and Controller. And it is also an ongoing action of believing the, with the heart one believes resulting in righteousness. So that as we look in God's word and we continue to believe and we continue to understand. And we continue to allow it to wash us. Then we are carrying forward the continuous action of believing. There in confessing and believing we are saved. We also see that Paul talks about the importance of the scripture and that through the scripture, those who believe will not be disappointed. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God will not turn away any who come to him. But it is that verse 14 that grabs us regarding hearing. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed and how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? The necessity, the vital nature of hearing is so clear. Well, as James reflects the effect of hearing, he does so by noting three aspects of hearing the word of God. I've included these as three sub points in our message for this morning, and you'll find them in the outline before you. We begin with the first of these, which I've titled a biblical response. A biblical response in verse 22. James begins verse 22 by saying, but prove yourselves doers of the word. James connects verse 22 back to verse 22 by this, or verse 21 rather, to that conjunction, but. We've often talked about James' use of contrasts as Proverbs also uses many contrasts and James is kind of like the the New Testament proverb. And the contrast lies in the distinction between receiving back in verse 21 and acting in verse 22. In verse 21, the believer is to receive the implanted word. Now in verse 22, he is to act on that word which he has received. And in this action is the command to prove yourselves doers. Or literally be doers of the word. The construction of this command in verse 22 is very important. Notice that he doesn't say do the word such that the act of simply performing in obedience would be sufficient. Be it obedience to a single task, or be it in obedience to a series of tasks. As important as that obedience might be, this is not what he's calling us to here. Now, I suspect most of you young people understand the importance of being obedient to God's word, and being obedient to your parents' commands to do something. I assume that when they tell you to clean your room or I assume when they tell you to take out the trash or I assume that when they give you any command to be of help to them that you understand that if you don't obey this command that there will be consequences for your actions. Well, that's exactly the understanding that James is bringing to us. But he just isn't emphasizing obedience to tasks. He is commanding that the individual become one who is a doer of the word. Not just one who does a few acts in obedience to God's word. But one whose very life is exemplified as a doer of the word. Do you see the critical distinction here? We can return to the example of a child doing the commanded tasks. That child may go ahead and carry the garbage out. That child may go ahead and clean his room. And therein, he is just one who is doing the task. But when he becomes one who desires to keep his room clean, when he is one who is always trying to look at a way to help his parents, then he is no longer one doing tasks He is a doer. He is one who wants to continually with his life be obedient and to help his parents. That is the distinction that's being brought before us in this text. This is another vital connection of being a doer versus just doing tasks. And it comes up many times in scripture. In fact, I'd like to ask you to turn with me to one of those locations in Matthew chapter seven. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, to see the importance of this distinction between just doing tasks and being a doer of the word. Find it on page 964 if you're in our pew Bible. Matthew seven twenty-one, And as James often connects Jesus' teaching and particularly the Sermon on the Mount, so he does so here also. The verses in Matthew 7:21 and forward fall near the end of the Lord's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and they're some of the most dramatic in scripture. As we mentioned, James was preparing the audience and us for some tough stuff as he associated himself with my beloved brethren. And in this text in Matthew 7, we too find some tough scripture. It immediately follows the section where the Lord is addressing those whose lives are evidenced by the fruit that they bear. So let's look at these verses in Matthew 7 and verse 21. Follow along as I read these couple verses if you would. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Do you see the distinction between being a doer and just doing tasks in this text. These who are coming to the Lord are those who have done tasks. They have gone and they have prophesied in the name of the Lord. A task. They have cast out demons in his name. A task. They have performed miracles in his name. A task task. But they are not doers of the word, and therein the Lord casts them from himself. And he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. It is vital for us to understand the distinction between doing tasks and being doers of the word. The Lord confirms and continues in this section by teaching on the two foundations, the solid rock of Christ on which to build a house or the sand. And as the storms of life come, the one built on the rock will stand and that on the sand will wash away. The same concept comes forward. Where are we founded are we the doers or are we just those who build a house assuming that it is standing on truth when in reality it is not? Let's return back to James one twenty-two. After telling us to be doers of the word back in, in James one twenty-two, he contrasts this with those who are not doers of the word. Namely, those who are just hearers. And being a hearer is self-explanatory. It's one who hears and doesn't do anything about it. You tell your child to empty the garbage and he sits on the couch. And you tell him to empty it again and he sits on the couch. And on and on it goes until you either get irate with him or for some reason something clicks and he decides to move. Well, here is the issue of the one who is a hearer. It's one who doesn't do anything about the word of God which he is hearing. Beloved, the word of God must impact your mind. That's what verse 19 was telling us. Know this. This was James' exhortation in that first verse. But it must do something else. It must change your heart. It must cause a response. It must cause you to be a doer and not just a hearer. If you're exactly the same person, when you leave church, that you were coming into church, then there's a problem. There's a disconnect. If you're the same person you were a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, then there's a really big problem. You might be emotionally stirred, but will you live differently? Are you changed? Are you obedient and desiring to be a doer of the word of God? Are you desirous of making every area of your life that which honors the Lord and his word? In putting off sin, in evangelism, in discipleship, even in believers' baptism, Are we obedient in every area of our lives? Because only then are we doers of the word as we continue to pour through God's word and to find ways in which we are not, in which we are not obedient and we desire to change. We recognize that and we want to be that child who is obedient to our father. James illustrates the danger of this at the end of verse 22 by noting that those who are just hearers delude themselves. They think they're being spiritual and religious, yet they are not changed. Not only are they not changed, but they are self-deluded. Beloved, every time we come into the Lord's house, Every time we are in God's word, whether it be corporately or privately, we must expect to be changed. Or to use James' language, you must prove yourself doers of the word. Francis Schaeffer was a powerful Christian writer from the 50s and 60s, and he wrote a book titled, How Now Shall We Live?, Many consider it his masterpiece of the dozens of books he wrote. And in this book is a famous statement that is the essence or the thesis of the entire book. And it it reads as following. And I quote. Christianity is not a series of truths in the plural. But rather truth spelled with a capital T. Truth. Truth. About total reality. Not just about religious things. Biblical Christianity is truth concerning total reality. And the intellectual holding of that total truth. And then living in light of that truth. See we tend to put our Christianity into compartments. In our secular world into another compartment. And we think that these are two different areas of life. And they are not. There is one truth, and it is God's truth. And it is fully sufficient for all matters of life and godliness. And we must understand that it is this which we must live by. We don't take a series of truths, and my truth isn't my truth, and your truth isn't your truth, and those out there of various different persuasions do not have their own truths. There is one truth and that truth is Jesus Christ and his revealed word. And we must live and abide and be doers of this truth. Our second subpoint follows in verse 23. After a biblical response, we have an unbiblical reflection. Look at verse 23 with me. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Now James gives us an unbiblical illustration of what he just talked about in verse 22, namely being a hearer and not a doer. And James says that he's like a man looking in a mirror. The verb for looking is variously translated, and it could be translated as to observe. Some Bibles have it as look intently or beholding. It describes intense sensory perception, or one dictionary says it is attentive scrutiny. There is an element of contemplation and careful examination that is going on as this man is looking at himself in a mirror. All that to say it isn't just a glance or a casual look as he goes by the way. This one is studying his face in a mirror. Now this follows based on what a mirror was in the ancient world. This wasn't a, a smooth piece of glass that was polished and had a metal backing on it so that it reflected almost the identical image which was before it. You see, the, the mirror of the ancient world was made of precious or semi-precious materials. It was either gold or silver or bronze or copper. And these were these plates that were pounded or as best could be rolled flat, and then they were polished And so depending on whether you were the more wealthy or the the less so, depended on what kind of reflection you got. Gold could be polished to a a higher level than any of the lower metals. Most of those with bronze or copper. And in that there were imperfections in in the surface of the metal. And it would tarnish. So in order to look at what you were seeing in the mirror, you had to focus carefully. You had to look closely at what you were seeing to understand this image. It's exactly what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, where he says that it is like seeing in a mirror dimly. And for the one to see the detail of his own face, careful examination is necessary. And not only is he looking intently, but scripture says he is looking at his natural face in verse 23. This term literally means the face of his birth. Hebert notes that this is talking about his plain face or his normal face. It's an external view and an outward side of this individual. Another commentator notes, he does not get into the inwardness of the word at all. We have these hearers to contend with in our preaching The real power of the word does not penetrate them. In the day of Jesus and of James, Judaism was rampant with these. Those who sit under the good teaching of the word of God, but when difficulties or decisions of life come up, they do not look to the word for their direction, but they look to their own hearts and they look to their own understanding, not trusting in the Lord or in his word in direct violation of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which they know so very well. Verse 24 clarifies this very situation. It says he observes himself. This is the same verb from verse 23, meaning to look intently. So he observes himself, and then he goes away or departs. That's fairly standard. The man comes, he he sees the mirror, and and he contemplates closely what he sees, and then he departs. And what happened to him? He has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. A literal translation of this verse would be, and immediately he forgets of what sort he was made. Not a little while, not later that day, but immediately he forgets. He forgets what he just looked carefully into. We can envision this as being at a fancy dinner party and, and going to the, the restroom and, and seeing that we've got a big old glob of ketchup on our chin and it's kind of dried on there. And we think, ah, well, it's been on there all night, so I'll just keep going. Who does that? But that is the understanding that's being brought forward. He looks and then completely forgets as if, oh, well, no big issue. And remember, beloved, James is giving us an illustration. This is a picture of the previous context. It is a picture of the word of God. It's an example of the one who is a hearer and not a doer. And this is the one who sits carefully listening to the word of God in church. And he leaves and immediately he forgets what he heard. And because of this, he is totally unchanged. And he cannot become a doer of the word because he is not even a hearer for immediately it departs from him. And this is an unbiblical reflection. So it's pretty bad, isn't it? I mean, you wouldn't want to spend time carefully considering the word of God, sitting and listening, pondering, looking intently at the scripture, following along in the cross references and then leave and remember none of it, would you? It's like going to work and not getting paid for it. Who would do that? No, you wouldn't do that. If that's the case, why go? Why not go fishing or golfing or take a nap because you're not getting anything out of it? Why is that? Because this one is just a hearer and not a doer. Can I tell you, beloved, two surefire ways to help avoid this? I mean, none of us wants this label, right? Of course, we don't or we wouldn't be here. Well, here's two no fail means by which you can be sure that this isn't you. The first is to go to fellowship groups. You mean just going to fellowship groups, Pastor, is going to help me to be not just a hearer but a doer? Yes, it will. That's because when we come together, we discuss the message. We interact in a friendly format in a home or or in one of our Sunday school rooms around a meal that allows us to converse and to discuss openly that everyone can interact. And so we're each individually stimulated regarding the topic that was just brought forward. What a wonderful way and a simple way for us to avoid this horrific danger. And so you'll say, yes, pastor, but we only have fellowship groups two times a month. So comes the second recommendation. Take notes. Your retention will go up over 30% per the statistics of studies at colleges and universities around the country. That's because you engage another faculty of learning when you write what you hear. It takes more thought process to put it into your own words and to truncate it and to boil down that which you are hearing. And to do so by noting just the highlights as that's what's reasonable for most folks to write down. Oh, and by the way, if you review those notes later in that day, it will further increase your attention. And it will be like a mini fellowship group every week. Give this a test if you're wondering about its viability. Write down 10 significant things from a sermon at say 4.30 on a day that you did not take any notes. Then do the same thing a few afters after after fellowship group when you also did not take any notes. And then do the same exercise after you've taken notes. And I guarantee you, you'll see the results. The effect of hearing, both a biblical response and an unbiblical reflection. And now, our third subpoint, a blessed result in verse 25. A blessed result. Verse 25 delivers this third aspect of the effect of hearing where it says, But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Once again, we see James' use of contrast. The very dark and difficult side of the negative element of the one who is a hearer only and not a doer. And now the positive side of the one who is Obedient and to which will receive a blessed result as he looks intently into the law. Now, our, our verb looks, which we saw in verses 22 or 23 and 24, is changed and now it is looking intently. Back in verses 23 and 24, the man was looking and we saw that as he was looking and scrutinizing, it was only his natural face. He was only looking at the surface. There was, no, there was no deeper penetration or desire. And now our verb carries the idea of desiring to look beyond and to look into. In fact, this verb is often translated as to look down into. We see it used not a ton in Scripture, but one other place in 1 Peter 1.12. And in First Peter 1.12, it says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. That scripture describes for us that the angels in heaven are longing to look into the salvation that God has given to us. Their desire is penetrating and understanding because how is it that this happens? They know what God does to those who are disobedient. They have seen a third of the angelic realm cast out from heaven for their disobedience. How is it that these who are disobedient receive the gift of Christ and receive forgiveness and receive his righteousness and they long to look into it. This is the same idea in verse 25 of the one who looks intently or longs to look. And what is he looking into? The law. Now the law is a reference to the entirety of the Old and New Testament scriptures. Now there can be several nuances to that word law and the way that it's used. And so it is in our text. In our text, it's called the perfect law and the law of liberty. Well, where it speaks of the perfect law, it's reflecting on the inerrancy and the infallibility of God's word. God's word is without error from beginning to end. From Genesis 1.1 to Revelation 22.21, there is no conflict. There is no error in this word. It is infallible. It will not cause you to stumble. It will not cause you to err. It is inspired. It comes to us from God himself. He has breathed out this word so that we who are breathed into by him would have a manual of how we're to live our lives, how we are to be doers. It is perspicuous. That is, it is clear. It is understandable. And it is sufficient. As we've already described for all matters of life and godliness, this is the perfect law. And it is also the law of liberty. And we understand that term liberty perfectly. It means freedom. We prepare to celebrate the freedom of our country, the liberty that we have to gather in a place like this and proclaim the truth of God. A mixed world and culture, even in our own cities and our own neighborhoods, that is hostile to that truth. This is liberty. God's word is the law of liberty. It sets us free from the deadly grasp of sin. The liberty comes from the work of Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. The gospel is what brings us life. We are Free from sin because Christ has borne all of the sin for us. We are free from the wrath of God and we experience the law of liberty because He has borne it. But we must understand, in light of that truth, what He has done and who we are, and that there is an inseparable chasm between those two that only the cross of Christ spans, and that we must accept that truth, and that we must come to Him. Crying out to him, desiring for the gift of salvation, for the gift of repentance. And scripture tells us, beloved, that he will in no wise cast you out if you would but come to him. Freedom from sin and wrath and both the Old and New Testament speak of Jesus' deliverance. John eight thirty four directly addresses this where John says in chapter 8 and verse 34... Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin, opposite of freedom. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. Beloved, do not be ensnared to the devices of Satan and of his minions. Do not be ensnared to the hell of this world and its sin and its lust. Do not be ensnared by the sin that is in your very flesh, but be free through the law of liberty of Christ. But notice, not only does this one look intently, but he abides By that law of Scripture. That is, he dwells in it. He lives in it. It is part of the very fabric of his being. And the result of this intense looking and abiding is that this one will not become a forgetful hearer. This is, he will not be one who looks at the word, the perfect law, the law of liberty, and immediately forgets what he saw but rather he will be an effectual doer, literally a doer of the work. My beloved, this must be true of us. We must be those who are engaged in the work of God, spelled out in the word of God. And for this intense looking and searching and for the abiding in the word of God, the law, This man will be blessed in what he does. Do you want the blessing of God upon your life? I do. And I believe that all of you do as well. My beloved brothers and sisters, this is how it happens. And this is the effect of hearing We'll come back and conclude our section on speaking next week. But for now, let's contemplate the intense truth which we've just learned. A wonderful example of all this lies in the Puritan mindset regarding the Lord's Day. For these men and women, they were seeking hard after God. And the entire day is one which was dedicated to God. And after church on Sunday and the main meal... They would spend time as a family talking about the message that they heard. The first fellowship groups. All the family sharing insights, recalling points, discussing the application for their lives. Richard Baxter believed that people who were physically overworked during the week were not tired in mind but in their bodies. And so he wrote, and therefore there is no recreation so suitable to them as the ease of the body and the holy and joyful exercise of the mind upon their Creator and their Redeemer and their everlasting rest. End quote. The importance of this family worship after church is expressed by one Puritan who wrote, our our families, we endeavor to make a church, laboring that those that were born in it, that is the church, might be born again to God. How critical is that for our children who have been born into the church We praise the Lord that they do not have the experiences of sin and darkness of those of us that came to the Lord later in life. But because of that, they do not see the powerful contrast. And therein, we must make certain that we do just as he says, that as they are born into the church, born into our family, which is church, that we make them part of it. That they are born again. I had the blessed privilege this morning of speaking for just a few moments with one of our dear senior saints. And as I spoke with her, we were talking about all of the things in life and all that goes on as you approach the latter years in your life. And she says, you know, I have such sweet children, but the greatest thing about them is they know Christ. Beloved, that's all that matters. There is nothing else that is of vital nature. Our children knowing the Lord. That's all that lasts. There's nothing else that we take with us. What a wonderful picture of being doers and not hearers only. You see the concept of saturation we spoke of earlier, don't you? No, it isn't being soaking wet with perspiration from working outside on a a warm, wonderful Alabama afternoon. Rather, it's being saturated with the word of God. Being a child so desirous of pleasing our heavenly father that we are daily searching to know him better. Daily desiring to be more obedient to his revealed will. Daily wanting to love him more as he has perfectly loved us. And when we gather corporately to praise our God, to use every resource at our disposal, to grow in knowing his glorious, perfect, and all-sufficient truth, then we are able to understand what it means to be doers of the word. This is the level of saturation that we must be striving for, beloved. And we get it by understanding the effect of hearing and by being a doer and not a hearer. May the Lord be pleased to grant you to know this, his glorious, precious truth.